Hello everyone and welcome to episode 48 of the Talking Football Podcast with me, Derek Clark. Every week we try and bring you at least one quality interview with some of the most interesting characters in the game. You're in for a treat this week. I had the pleasure of chatting to the legendary Bob Wilson to look back at his career both in football and the world of television presenting. It's a two-part interview. In this episode, we'll look back at his time spent between the sticks for his beloved Arsenal and his two appearances for Scotland. Bob's story in the game is absolutely fascinating. He tells us the time his dad stopped him from becoming a Busby babe at Manchester United. His journey that saw him become an Arsenal legend. He looks back on great games, including their Intercities Fairs Cup final in 1970, the double-winning season in 71, and how proud he was to represent Scotland despite a media outcry at the time. As expected, Bob has an array of terrific stories to tell, so sit back and enjoy the latest episodes of the Talking Football Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of the Talking Football Podcast. I'm absolutely honoured and delighted to say we're joined this week by legendary goalkeeper and broadcaster Bob Wilson. Bob, thanks very much for joining us. That's, uh, it's lovely to be asked, Derek. Thank you. Fantastic career, Bob. And fantastic life. Most colourful life that you've had. Let's kick off all the way back. You were born in, in Chesterfield in 1941. Can you tell us what life was like growing up back then? Were you always sort of playing football? Yeah, I mean, from the earliest days. I think I, I was a lucky guy. It was a very, very sporting family in so much that my dad was a natural cricketer, a really good cricketer. Um, <clears throat> And then my two eldest brothers were athletes and rugby players, particularly. Um, and my two eldest brothers are two of, well, they're, they're my two biggest heroes because I was four months old when Jock was shot down and killed in his Spitfire. And I wasn't two years old when Billy, who was a rear gunner in a Lancaster on his 13th or 14th raid to Germany, uh, was shot down and killed as well. So, you know, as I speak to you now, I mean, these guys, I have I have a photograph of them with their wings in their uniform. Well, one of Jock in his Spitfire, actually, and Billy by the rear turret was, you know. Um, and they, they, they will always remain my heroes because I never knew them. You know, even my brother Hugh, who's two and a half years older than me, I was the youngest of the six. Hugh remembers particularly the knock on the door when they came to tell my mum and dad that Billy... Uh, had not returned from wow. the mission that he was on. So, I mean, you couldn't have two greater heroes than these guys. Anything I will do in my life or have done in my life would never come close to matching what those two guys did. And so there was Jock and Billy, and then there was Don, who was became a farmer and was an incredible character. He, he died many years ago as well, Don. Um, and then Jean, my sister, <laughs> our only our only uh, girl in the family who has, she's now 90 and unbelievably she had a horrible form of cancer last year. And she actually, according to the two surgeons who operated on her, they lost her for one minute, but they got, they brought her back and she is the most amazing lady. Uh, and then there's my brother, Hugh, who, who sort of became my mentor being two and a half years older than me. So, you know, that, that was the family line. And, um, a mum and dad who were as Scottish as Scottish as Scottish. <laughs> I mean, I can't tell you, Derek. I mean, my mum, my my dad was, you know, my dad was in fought in the First World War, and wow. he was in the Highland Light Infantry, and he had a very Scottish accent to the day that he died. 
And he was, I, I'm not going to say a fierce dad. He was an amazing dad. But he believed in good manners, treating people correctly. He didn't like, uh, he didn't like if you stepped off the mark at all. As for my mum, she was, oh, dearie. I mean, I know this is as close I'm going to get to her accent, but, <laughs> you know, she she would be, oh, dearie, you know, uh, it, it'll all turn out for the best. She had this saying, it'll all turn out for the best. It's meant to be. And this is when I'd let in three or four goals and played badly, you know? <laughs> and I'm going, mum, but mum, you don't understand. I've, let, I've made a mistake. And, oh, dearie, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. And she was there, of course, on the night when it all turned totally upside down the debut against uh, Portugal and that's me having on the side at home in my office I have very memorably and very famously I have an England schoolboys cap and alongside it but only after an amazing fight by the way to get it mm. uh, I got um, a Scottish cap because they didn't give in Scotland they didn't give a cap if you didn't play in the home internationals yeah um, and the and and I had a I had quite a fight. I I told them the history of it. I mean, they knew anyway. I was pleading with Ernie Walker, who was the former SFA secretary, and he just turned me down flat. Um, and, but I kept on. I wouldn't give up on it because I knew there would be quite a lot of guys came after me uh, who would been born in England and would face the same issue. And it was Jim Farry and Craig Brown who eventually said, look, you know, this is, I offered to pay for my cap. I said, look, this is a piece of history, guys. Do you not understand what this means to me and my mum and dad and my family? Um, and it was those two, Jim Farry and Craig Brown, <clears throat> who changed the ruling. And I know I got lots of uh, thank yous, as it were, from the guys who followed me, who were born in England, uh, but of Scottish parentage. Yeah, uh, funny you should mention the cap thing. I've read um, Stuart Imlach, who played for Scotland as well, and I think it was a, the '58 World Cup or something like that as well. He also struggled to get a cap, and I think it was his son uh, that battled for him as well to, to get that. So it, it was terrible back then, wasn't it? They never gave out caps for, um, for for games, and now they give them out like like sweeties, more or less. Well, you know, Stuart Imlach. I think I, I remember him thanking me personally. Because yeah. he he got the history of how you could suddenly it was suddenly you're going to get a cap, um, and it was not going to be just for the fact that you played in the home internationals against England, Wales, and Northern Ireland. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean that that was just a part. It was it was probably my my dad's fighting Scottish spirit that said don't give up on this. But mm -hmm. I was turned down flat initially. Um, but then, it, you know, the whole thing was, was, was such an amazing thing. Um, the fact that, you know, the Scottish press gave me quite a rough ride, you know, I mean, compared with things that are said nowadays and whatnot. Um, but they, they saw me as an outsider with this strange accent. Yeah. And um, I couldn't do anything about that, even though at home every day, every day of my life leading up to my going off to university, um, I was... I was, you know, I, the Scottish accent was there massively throughout my life, throughout all that life until I got married myself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we'll certainly touch more on the, on the Scotland stuff as well a little later, Bob. In terms of um, your early footballing um, career, I, w I was reading that um, you, you were on the books of Manchester United as, as a youngster. 
Yeah, I mean that the, the great Samat. I mean, it is. I mean, the whole story you said early on about you know. I mean, whether I'm classed as a legend at Arsenal, maybe so because of what we did at that time. But you know, the whole of my life. I mean, I always say at the end of anything, one lucky boy, uh, because it's taken me into so in so many you know so many routes and everything. And so um, you know, as a kid, I, I was just a natural athlete. Um, that wasn't the question you just asked me, was it? No, but um, you certainly. I know you played a number of different sports, didn't you? When you were when you were growing up, I guess. Yeah, uh, I guess I mean, you were just point, made to be a goalkeeper. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I was what I was told when I went to Loughborough to train as a physical education teacher. The perfect mesomorph because you can be either ectomorph, endomorph, or mesomorph. Ectomorph and endomorph are either very thin or very fat. And mesomorph is a perfect body shape. So, I mean, in my growing up, I captained Derbyshire boys and uh, as, a, as a wicket-keeping batsman. Um, I won the local tennis and Derbyshire tennis championship singles, and I played in doubles with my brother as well. Uh, you know, it was, and I ran in the All England Athletics representing Derbyshire oh. in the 440 yards, as it was there. They call it 400 meters now. And 51.9 was my time, and I had to win the county championship. And then, you know, like all of my life, when things are going well, it's sometimes good to be whacked and brought down to earth because I went and represented Derbyshire in the All England, and it was held in Southampton. We were put in digs. And I happened to be running in the first heat of the very first day of the two days. Mm. And I was in the outside lane in the 440 yards as it was then. And for 200 yards, I was leading. And then somebody came past me, and then a second and a third, and ah, I didn't qualify for the following round and spent two days in Southampton being as miserable as sin because, you know, I, I was no longer a winner. You know, <laughs> for yeah. some reason, I had this winning thing in me. I had to win, I had to win. I hated losing. And um, in fact, my brother, Hugh, who is the one who's two and a half years older, he came up with a saying, and he said, well, you, you'll know Bob because he's either uh, rotten game, super game. <laughs> and we used to play all these competitive things together. And if I lost, it was a rotten game. And if I won, it was a super game. Um, and, you know, and I think that competitive spirit was in me and has got me through all sorts of things, both on the sporting front and then, oh dear, later in life, yeah. 21 years ago when we lost our daughter. Yeah. Yeah, um, uh, the Manchester. I was reading that, that y your father wouldn't let you sign for for Manchester United back at, back in the day. Is that is that right? Yeah, I mean, I was part of the England <laughs> schoolboy team because you could only play for the country in which you were born. So, in 1957, at the age of 15, I played in that uh, in that year, and alongside people like Bobby Tambling of Chelsea the ones who actually made it later on out of that team, quite interesting. Uh, Bobby Tambling um, had a good career at Chelsea. Nobby Styles was in that side. Wow. Wow. He, had his, he had his teeth then. He had all his <laughs> teeth then. But he was a ferocious little devil. And, of course, he was born in Manchester. And anyway, um, a man called Joe Armstrong was the chief scout of Manchester United. And he was the one who approached Nobby Styles' parents and myself and said, these are the two that Sir Matt Busby... He recommended us to uh, Man United. And so 
off I went. I played in some um, school. When I say schoolboy, it was like academy games, if you like. Now, yeah. Yeah. 15 years of age, 16 years, 17 years of age. And when I was 17, I think it was about 17, we went off on one particular night. Man United were playing against Aston Villa in what was um, a charity shield final mm. at that time at, at Old Trafford. And we sat down. Oh, well, I was left out of the room. My dad went in and my mum was with me. And we got back in the car to go home because I thought, that's it. I'm going to be a, bus- a Busby babe. Mm-hmm. What you've got to remember here, Derek, is that I, this is October 1957 and in february 58 was the horror of munich yeah and the crash the air crash so i got to meet all those guys personally um just the once in the there was a snooker room there and i met them all anyway on the way home having gone to what i thought was going to be signed my professional forms or ultimately professional forms i said to my dad dad what's happening you know and my mum went really quiet I sort of had a, I'd had had a warning about it because one, another of the Man United staff who believed in me, Bert Wally, he came to me as I left and he hugged me. And very unusually in that sort of time. And he said, son, never forget how good you can be. And I sort of looked at him. I thought, you know, well, I'll be seeing you soon. Yeah. But he knew that my dad had said, no, um, football's not a proper job. As he put it to me, look, wow. Bob. Football is not a probably called me Rob. Rob, football is not a proper job. Um, I need you to get a proper job. If you still want to be a professional footballer, you'll get my blessing, but you need to get a proper job. And and, and the alternative at that time for me was quite a family history within the police forces in either north or south. And I was the natural sort of athlete and I chose Loughborough University as it is now <clears throat> and studied Physical education and history became a PE teacher. And it was during that time Man United lost interest in me, even though I was, I got into the England uh, amateur squad and got picked for the Olympic Games, as it were, but um, didn't get that far. Um, and, and then suddenly out of the blue, while I was playing at Loughborough in the Loughborough University side against Wolves one day, Stan Cullis came and said, would you come and sign for us? You, you're not no longer with Man United. So I used to hitch lifts and go and play in Wolves third team or reserve team, never in the first team, just an 18 year old student, 19 year old student, 20 year old student. And <laughs> that was incredible. And then they offered me terms, but by then in playing for the British universities, the physio for the British universities was a man called Bertie Mee. Yeah, Arsenal. And Bertie Mee was the Arsenal physio at the time, who ultimately became the manager and my manager in the double winning side and everything. And he went to Billy Wright, who was the manager at Arsenal. He said, look, I've got this guy in goal for the British universities. He's a complete nutter. He told me this himself. (laughs) He said, he's a nutter. He's either going to save you a hundred Say he's going to make a hundred saves that would have been certain goals, or he's going to be in hospital for most of his life because he just goes head first. Which was my style. That was a Bert Troutman way of doing yeah. it because Bert was sort of my hero. Yeah. And so it was Bertie who recommended me, and I, I took off. Um, one day I actually snuck off, as it were, from uh, Loughborough, and I drove down and I arrived outside the Marble Halls of Highbury, and I fell in love with the ground. Billy Wright was a lovely guy. I'm not sure he was cut out to be a manager. It's probably too nice a guy to do that. But mm-hmm. anyway, 
I signed I signed for Arsenal. Uh, I made an appearance as an amateur school teacher. Played made played ten games as an amateur school teacher, and then the lads all said, "Look, boss, we never see him. He's teaching every day," and they virtually got me kicked out of the side. And I then was in the wilderness. Interesting, really, because people forget this for three seasons before I was hanging on reserves, reserves, reserves until suddenly Bertie Me put me in and 310 first team games later, yeah, yeah everything had happened. It's, it's been an amazing, one lucky boy, as I say, Derek. Yeah, certainly. Um, uh, certainly, I mean, when you found out that your father had said no to, to Manchester United, it must have been hurt, hurt you hard. And did, did, you, did you think about maybe giving up the game back then or did that sort of give, give you... Uh, the inspiration to sort of prove them wrong that you could, you could carve yeah, a career in it. Yeah, I think I think it was the inspiration to prove my dad wrong. I mean, it's a little bit like I've just taught, told you about. You know, at Arsenal, a lot of the players didn't think I was ever going to be good enough. Yeah. Amateur school teacher, too nice a guy, too polite, calls everybody sir. You know, I mean, and it was a, it was that I'm going to, Dad, I'm going to prove you wrong here. I had to. I came out of Loughborough. Um, and went straight into teaching, even though I played for Arsenal in 10 first-team games. I mean, could you imagine that today, an amateur <laughs> school teacher playing in the Premier League, as it were? And it got a lot of publicity, obviously, and we only lost one of those games, the last one at um, Chelsea, and that's when I know the guys, because Don Howe, who was in the side and who became our coach as well, he told me that the lads had just said, look, you know, we don't see him. He's an amateur school teacher. Come on. This isn't right. Um and so anyway, that was just for a year that I taught and then I became a full-time pro. But there was no easy way back into the side. Yeah. Arsenal had bought Jim Fennell at that time yeah. um, after after my 10 games and Jim was in possession. And that's the way it stayed for at least two and a half, three seasons. Yeah. But um, But what followed was extraordinary because in the first season... You know, the first season I was in, I only played about, um, it was the end of a season, so I played 15 games. The following season, we got to Wembley, but yeah. lost famously to Swindon Town in the League Cup final. Yeah. The year after that, we won the first European trophy at Arsenal. The year after that, we won the League and the Cup. The year after that, we went back to Wembley, although I missed the final because of my crazy yeah. style having got me carried <laughs> off in the semi-final and the year after that we were second we were runners up to Liverpool I think it was Liverpool in the in the league yeah. so I mean I had I had this amazing amazing time uh, I was always prone to injury and had two or three quite serious ones along the route I was going to ask but when you were understudy to Jim Fernell of uh, for those seasons, um, Bob, how difficult is it when when you are a goalkeeper and, and you're not playing games? I mean, back then you you wouldn't, I guess, be anywhere close. When he's obviously had a number one jersey, was it was it difficult? Yeah, to watch you know, week? yeah, you know, Derek, that is a really good question because there's no reserve side now. Yeah. yeah. What you got to remember when I played is between 1963 when I arrived at Arsenal and decided to go into the media because there was a chance that I was going to have another job and I never wanted to play for anybody else. But, um, yeah, it, 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 was, it was a really interesting time then that we had reserve side. Mm. So I, when I get introduced, this, this really riles me because the people often don't do, well, they probably don't, don't have to, but they'll say, well, you know, today we've got Bob Wilson with us, you know, um, le- Arsenal legend, 310 appearances for Arsenal Football Club. 
and I'm slightly boiling inside because I played Derek 536 times with an Arsenal gun on my chest. So I played 310 in the first team and the rest in the stiffs. Yeah. And the stiffs (laughs) were the reserves. Mm -hmm. In other words, you weren't quite good enough. Yeah. And and a lot of people forget that I had that, and it, it was it was probably good because my I never changed my style of play. My style worked for me in the same way that Pat Jennings' style and David Seaman's style. I was able to coach these two guys at one time, mm-hmm. but they they were never never going to get their heads kicked in or break their ten ribs as I have broken ten ribs in my career and punctured lung and broken right arm and broken wrist and broken fingers and <laughs> one broken shoulder. I mean, they, they, these guys were guys who stood on their feet and said, okay, they were the ones who just had this presence and calm and instead of going head first Troutman style like I did, <laughs> they just, they had this amazing ability to just stand and say, okay, you try and beat me, mate. Yeah. Um, so, you know, my style worked for me and and I would still, you know, I, 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 I go, it's great when I watch Premier League games or Scottish games or whatever I'm watching, whatever games I'm watching, and I see a goalkeeper go head first into it. And I go, wow, that is all our yesterdays. Because yeah. nowadays they stand on their feet and they save with their feet. They often go through their legs. Uh, and my idea was I was always looking for the moment of miscontrol. My favorite save ever, Derek. Yeah. was at George Best feet at Highbury in our double year. Yeah. And George was through on his own. And I know 999 times out of 1,000, he would have scored. And he came through. And I my, I was always looking for the moment it, there was a slight miscontrol as he dribbled. And there was nobody better than Bestie or Jimmy Greaves. And as he came through, there was a miscontrol. And it was the element of surprise. Head first, Troutman style, head first. <laughs> and... Yeah, when I had my This Is Your Life program, they got George on, and he was so funny about it because he said, Bob remembers, he said, I remember nothing about it, George said, I remember nothing about it, but Bob remembers how many were in the crowd, what the weather was like, what the pitch was like. (laughs) He was so funny about it. He said, Bob remembers everything about it because it became, it was my trademark save, and even now people say, you know, he was the daftest, they might use the word courageous goalkeeper that they'd ever seen. Yeah. But it was my style and it worked for me and I couldn't I couldn't play in another style. Yeah. I was going to ask as well, Bob, of course you played back in a time where uh, goalkeepers never wore gloves. Do your hands often sting after, after a game? Is that something you, you had yeah, to do with? Yeah, I mean, they, you know, you never, you never really thought about it. I mean, at the time, if the pitch was, if it was a decent pitch, I mean, ultimately we did wear green cotton type, useless green cotton gloves in really wet, soggy, muddy yeah. You know, I mean, I want to look at the pitches now because, you know, 10% of all the pitches now are artificial anyway, so they don't rip up anymore. But, I mean, in those days, I mean, the trick for me was I would look at my hands before the game. I would spit on my hands a bit of chewing gum and rub the chewing gum into my hands (laughs) to make them sticky, tacky. And that, that was it. If it was a dry day, that was, in fact... Those, it remained sticky and tacky. And, you know, you could have chewing gum. You might be chewing gum throughout the game. Um, and they were tacky and sticky. And, and it gave you sort of maybe subconsciously a little bit of confidence. Um, the problem was when it was really wet and eventually Peter Benetti and Gordon Banks came out with a pair of five shilling, four shillings and 
ninepence, I think they were, mm. green cotton gloves like a gardener's gloves, and they were useless. Yeah. But they sort of gave you a psychological, oh, I've got some gloves. And it was Gordon Banks in the 1970 World Cup who first came back with like cotton gloves, but with these rubber strips down them. Yeah. And from there, we've developed into the 300-pound goalkeepers, almost like baseball gloves that oh, you see crazy. the guys wearing nowadays. Yeah. Yes, it's, it's something else. You made the, the first team, of course, at, at Arsenal. You mentioned there um, Billy, Billy Wright was there when you, when you first arrived, and then Bertie Mee took over. He was a, a physio, as you mentioned there. What did the, the players make of the physio being appointed as a, as a first-team coach? Well, it was 1966, so England, dare I say this on a Scottish programme, <laughs> England had just won the World Cup. Uh, but we're, by the way, we're about to be beaten by Scotland for the first time after they'd yeah, won the World Cup. Yeah, 67, yeah. So that, that gets me out of it, you know. <laughs> uh, but anyway, what, what was, sorry, Derek, what was yeah, the, the actual... Ber- Ber- Bertie Mee takes over from, from oh, Billy yeah. Wright. What, what was the yeah, first we all got a letter. Yeah, we all got a letter at the club. I mean, um, and it was to say, um, it was to say that uh, the things were not good. I mean, really, really... 15,000 only turned up for a game in Billy's last season and everything was falling apart. And Anyway, what happened then was that Bertie Mee, we got this letter saying Bertie Mee was going to be made manager. And I mean, most of the lads laughed and they said, what are you talking about? Bertie's a lovely man. He was, in fact, an officer and a gentleman. That's how I would describe him. He was able to have Churchillian type speaking. Uh, He found the right words always, which some coaches never found. So he was there, but what he did was put alongside him a guy who became, I think, the best coach in England for quite a long period of time, which was Don Howe, who'd played for West Bromwich Albion, who'd been right back for England, who became, you know, played in the the sides that I played in when I first arrived at Arsenal. And then he became a reserve team coach. And he appointed Don as the first team coach. And he just became definitely one of the greatest footballing coaches of all time in my opinion and he was the inspiration he'd always say to me at the end of a training session when the rest of the lads gone in because you know there was no I I basically began goalkeeping coaching in England you know at the end of my playing career but there were no goalkeeping coaches and and Don would finish with his training session and say Willow do you want to do you want a a bit more shoot shots and I'd say yes Don I need to do this And, and, and we did a few exercises and everything and I got him to realize that we as goalies needed the same sort of pressure work of passing, trapping, control, heading. Yeah. And we as goalies, you know, we had, you know, we play, we play eight yards by eight feet, 192 square feet. It's an effing great chasm. Yeah. You know, and so Don was amazing. Um, and, and so he became, he became Bertie's number one. The great other thing that happened was that there were five, young kids coming through from the ages of 19 to 21 and they had the courage to integrate them in a side that had two the two old boys at that time were well i wasn't in the side initially so frank mcclintock he bought yeah but i mean when we were winning all our things frank was 32 in the double year for instance frank was 32 i was 30 and then the next lad was 27 and but we had five kids between uh, 19 and 21 including Charlie George, Ray Kennedy, Eddie Kelly, uh, another Scot in there. Yeah. Um, 
pat rice. Yeah, and 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 it worked. Suddenly, the blend worked. And although we had the horror of losing at Wembley to Swindon on a pitch that I promise you nowadays you would never ever have that game been allowed to go ahead. It had been horse of the year show too. I know it's just an excuse you're hearing <laughs> here. But you know, and Swindon adapted brilliantly on the day and they deserved yeah. to win it on the day. But it was a pitch that was a ploughed field and it was the ball just stuck in the mud. It was just a joke field really. Yeah. But they deserved to win it on the day and everybody then wrote us off. And then we all sat down, two or three lads got transferred and the, the the young lads were integrated. And that following year, we won the first European trophy for Arsenal um, against Anderlecht in the final. And then from that year, that followed with the double and, you know, the first or seconds for six or seven seasons, which was an amazing spell for Arsenal. Um, and... Um, and I guess is the reason that I am one of those lucky players who are on the outside of the current Emirates ground. So 32 of us are back to the crowd as they arrive, just with your name on your back and your number. So there you'll see number one, Wilson, but unbelievably linked arms next to me of all people, my favorite probably Arsenal player of all time, Dennis Bergkamp. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, he didn't play when I played, but I, I am lucky enough to be... I'm scared to death that they'll they'll have somebody who'll become far better and they'll say, oh, let's get rid of Bob Wilson. He's been on there for long enough. Oh, you know? oh, I don't <laughs> think so. I, don't, I very much doubt it. They'll have to be special, I think, to to, to remove you, Bob. But I was good, you mentioned the Emirates there. Uh, of course, that's uh, the ground where Arsenal play at the moment. Um, you played at the old Highbury. It was a... a, a I loved Highbury. I thought it was a fantastic stadium. What was it like to play yeah. there? Yeah, it, it, it was more than a football stadium. I, yeah. I, again, rather dramatically, when I wrote, you know, when I've ever written anything about Highbury and I walk out, walked out on the middle of the pitch on that day that I, I skipped off university and I went to the middle and I looked at the two stands, uh, the east and the west stand, and then there was the famous... North Bank, and at the other end there was the clock end with the famous clock, great big, massive clock that is now integrated within the Emirates. Yeah. And I, I've always said, it, to me, it wasn't a football ground; it was like a cathedral. I'd never, I'd never been in a ground quite like it. It was just beyond anything, and that, and that was not just being outside looking at it from the field at the stands. It was the fact that you, the marble halls, the dressing rooms were marble. It was just, uh, you know. It was just quite extraordinary. I can tell you when, when Arsene Wenger arrived, he he fell in love from day one with that ground. He hated the fact that he persuaded the club to move to the Emirates, but only for the fact that he, we couldn't get more than 38,000 capacity at Highbury, whereas the new ground holds 60,000. And if you want to maintain up at the top with the Barcelonas and Real Madrids and everybody else, you have to have that capacity. Um, but he, like everybody else, absolutely loved Highbury. And, uh, you know, it's, it's blocks of flats now. They're converted, but you can go out into the middle yeah. of the garden area and I can still see, well, the two stands are still there. You know, they're, they're Art Deco stands. From the outside, when you're in the street, nothing has changed. They, they are yeah. the two, the east and the west stand are Art Deco, as they say. And they can never, ever, that was part of the agreement when they built the flat, that you could not remove that outer wall on either side. 
Yeah, quite right too. It's a, like you say, it's, it's an absolute work of art. And it was it's, it's sad. I guess that they had to move uh, to, to grow. I'd, I'd imagine, but it's sad when when they leave these old, old stadiums, isn't it? Um, oh it's, yeah, it's a shame. Um, you mentioned there that the Intercities Fairs um, Cup that you oh, won in yeah. ni- nineteen seventy. Your uh, Arsenal's first European trophy, a fantastic achievement for for, uh, for the Gunners. There, you beat Andalite over two legs in the final. What, what's, your, what's your memories of that run, Bob? And um, how special is that um, for you as an achievement? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, you know, um, the real point about that, uh, when you say my memories, and immediately you started to ask me that question, one face, one name, one man came right into my mind. And very appropriately, our captain, Scottish, uh, how can I describe him? Um <laughs> Uh, I tell you, I tell you, let, let's, we got through the rounds reasonably comfortably all the way through to playing Ajax. Yeah. And Ajax in the semi final was this young emerging Ajax side that were from then on going to win the Europe, the European Cup, as it was called then, the Champions League now. They won it three years running. So you're talking about Cruyff and Johnny Rep and just an amazing Ajax side. But blow me, we beat them in the semi final. And so that was, that was one of the biggest lifts of all, um, you know, on the way up. Because what happened the following year came as a result of beating, not just the Andalus and you know, and, and to beat Ajax with Johan Cruyff in there. But come the final, we played this final, and the first leg was in Brussels in Andalus, and obviously they were the champions out there and everything. And we were, we were three nil down, absolutely welled, uh, and we've got five minutes to go and. Bertie me put on Ray Kennedy, put him on as a sub, young kid, 19 or 20, and blow me with three minutes to go, he scores a goal. Mm-hmm. But we've lost 3-1. And okay, we've got a second leg one week later. We went into the dressing rooms. I mean, it was a morgue. It was just, there wasn't a sound. There were the boots being hurled around. And we went into the showers because, you know, there used to be, well, I used to be a great big bath, but in, in that particular ground, there were showers. And the worst affected when we went in there, almost to tears, was our captain. Wow. And it, it was like, what's Frank? Frank's lost the plot. He, you know, he couldn't speak. And we went in and we were all through his so It was just unbelievable. And we came out the showers more or less, more or less all together. And then we came out. As I came out, all I could hear was this, very Scottish screaming voice. And we will, this is what we're going to do to them. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We didn't do this. We're going to do that. And Frank went off on one. I mean, he was absolutely incensed. He was, he'd lost control, but he actually believed it had, it had, it had actually registered in his mind that we'd lost three, one, which meant we only had to win two nil at home with the away goal counting. Yeah. And and he was screaming and shouting. And it, I mean, I always call it the Braveheart time, you know. <laughs> it was suddenly, it was the Braveheart, you know. It was, he was unbelievable. And he was, he, he'd put in, by the time we got on the bus to go back to the airport, we were believing we're going to win this. We're going to win it. And okay, it was a long seven or eight days to go. But by the time we went out on that night, Frank was just as inspirational as he always was. You know, he was, he never hung around. If he thought you did something wrong, even if it was me behind him, you know, 
he didn't take it well if I gave it back to him. <laughs> but if I if I did something wrong and I was fine with it, he would be right in my face. Will I? Why the, didn't you come for that ball? It's seven yards out, you know. Uh, I mean, he would be, and and he was the inspiration without doubt, along with Don Howe and a lot, along with the calmness of Bertie Me, the manager. And when we went out on that night against Anderlecht, it was a fairy tale night. It was the greatest night ever in the history. Uh, of Highbury without any doubt yeah. because suddenly it was 1-0 then 2-0 so we basically got our hands on the trophy and then Jan Mulder who was a, uh, a Dutch he was a Dutchman playing centre forward for them uh, the only time they really came incredibly close was he beat me with a shot he was just one against one with me and he sort of bent it it hit the post and came back into my arms mm-hmm. It was that close because I think that would have finished us. And instead, we went right up the other end and scored a third goal. And all hell broke loose. I mean, we then, from then on, never thought that they might score a goal, which meant that, you know, you were back to square one. Uh, But it was was an incredible thing. And then the final whistle went. The place went mad. The pitch got invaded. You can imagine what it was like. The trophy got presented. We tried to do a, a lap of the pitch. By that time, uh, the Anderlecht goalie had asked me for my jersey. It's one of the biggest regrets I have because mm. I exchanged my jersey from that night and he gave me his, which was like a Fred Perry T-shirt <laughs> with short, short sleeves. It was like, honestly, it was like a, just a, a T-shirt. And I've given him my precious final Arsenal one with the badge and the final and everything else it represented. Mm. But so I was naked from the waist up, and um, I think only only Frank and myself, and I think George Graham, uh, we made the full the full running of the of the ground, as it were. But we were joined by thousands of people because I came in and I was I was I was actually bright red because people had been slapping my back and. You know, there's some famous pictures of me looking, you know. But anyway, it was a start and it was the belief. And Bertie Me had the sense, you know, once we're in there to say, look, guys, this is the beginning. Mm. And, you know, next year we're going to carry this over. And the next year, of course, took us to a memorable uh, right up to the very last game where we had to win or draw the game nil-nil to pip Leeds yeah. as champions. And then five days later, we played Liverpool to win the double. Yeah. So it's, I mean, these are, I'm so pleased that I filed so much of my stuff to bring back the memories. I don't, I don't spend every day, by the way, looking at them. It's <laughs> lovely when, when people like yourself, Derek, say, Bob, by the way, I want to talk to you about being a spot. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I've got the books out again. And I mean, the photographs that I have, and they're just, it's amazing, really. It, it is amazing. Yeah, yeah, it certainly is. It's good. To, it's good to look back, and and it leads us nicely on, like like you said, into the the seventy seventy one season. I think a, a massive highlight for you, um, not only for in a team uh, level but personal level as well. Being named Player of the Year and winning the double, and like you say that that how how good was that the team that that season? Did they just have that sense sense of belief that they could go on and uh, and and win trophies? Yeah, it was absolutely what you're saying. Now, I, I I'm ne- I'm going to be brutally honest. We weren't the prettiest side to watch. If you look in, you know, the last two or three years of Premier League, you look at Liverpool now, you look at Manchester City at their best, and you just are in awe of the manner in which they play the game. Other than the 
plumbing playing out from the back from the goalie. Don't get me onto that. Otherwise, <laughs> you'll have me ranting and raving. Stupid, stupid things that they're doing there nowadays. Yeah. But anyway, it, it, it was it was incredible, really, that, um, you know, that, that following year, we picked up almost immediately. Having said that, halfway through it, we went to Stoke City and we lost 5-1. It was on match of the day. By this time, I had actually been not a presenter on television. That didn't happen until I finished my playing career, but I, I was a pundit, as it were. And it's yeah. easy being a pundit. You just sit there and talk about the game you love. <laughs> it's great. And I went on a match of the day after we'd lost to Stoke uh, at a, a crucial time. And at that time, it meant we were 13 points behind Leeds. And I remember Bertie Mee calling me in the next day and saying, if you ever do that, I, I don't mind you going on television but you never go in and talk about a game that we've lost 5-1. He absolutely wow. well, it, you know. And so it was, right, Bertie, I understand. Okay, it must have looked bad, you know, because I wasn't making excuses. I just said we'd had a, a really bad day. Yeah. And the irony was <clears throat> that we then, we actually, we sat down, we talked about the game the following day. The actual came in on the Sunday. And then we went 13 games undefeated that put us right back up there challenging lead to a beginning to slip up um, over the over, towards the end of the season. And it was just an amazing belief. I, I call it the perfect jigsaw. I think of a football team as some roof, uh, some, some really smooth components and some really sort of broken, you know what I mean, a jigsaw. Yeah. So they all fit together. And that team, it was a 17-man squad, 16 or 17-man squad. Only 13 actually played during the season. I was the only one who played every minute of every game. George Armstrong also played all 42 league games, but um, was in fact taken off on one of the games. Um, and for me personally, it was, you know, it, it, it's not that I went through the season without making a mistake. You know, obviously goalkeepers will make during the course of a season, you're going to be a bit egotistical if you're not going to say you make at least at least, even in a in a season like that for me, I would say uh, a minimum five to ten positional errors or where I went to catch a ball and I didn't catch it cleanly um, with my bare hands, um, <laughs> you know. Um, and so it, uh, it was for me personally, it was as if somebody above was looking down on me mm-hmm. and saying, this is what you always believed you were capable of doing. And to be a player of the season, voted by the fans in that season, a player of the season, and to finish, I think I was voted third. Frank McClintock was footballer of the year, and I was third. I was voted third. Uh, you know, which was, again, a massive reflection for me that I had I had achieved something, well, way, way beyond... Not beyond my dreams, because there was never a, a, there was never a limit to what I dreamt yeah. that, that I could achieve at football. Um, but it certainly was a period in my life and a period in my my time at Arsenal where I knew that the fans themselves, I could tell I'd come out the front door of Highbury and there'd be crowds of people there. I mean, you imagine the modern day players going out and spending an hour signing autographs outside the ground. <laughs> you know, uh, it doesn't happen, all no. the private grounds and everything else now. No, it does not. Um, apart from the fact that you cannot, 
you can hardly read a modern signature, which really <laughs> riles me. I, I have, I mean, close to me now, I have the George Best signature, which is in my vision as I talk to you. Mm. And it's absolutely precise, George Best. Yeah. I have a Frank McClintock signature in front of me, and it's clearly F-R-A-N-K. And you see the modern signatures, and there's a squiggle. Yeah, I know. There's a squiggle. It's, it's, it's not even it. often the surname... Or they might put the Christian name, but you don't know it's a Christian name or surname. No. And I think it happens in a lot of sports uh, that it's just a squiggle. And I think it, I actually said it's probably going back to my Scottish dad, disrespectful. Yeah. They've asked you for your signature. How long is it going to take? You're going to be probably half an hour at the most delayed. Yeah. And even now when people ask for a photograph and everything, and, and I might be holding the family up or whatever, and I say, no, no, listen, they've, they've spent... Whatever money they've had coming here, think they've come from all over the country, the masses from Scotland, from Ireland, you know, Scottish supporters oh, yeah. of which I'm proud to be all, all to be associated with. And, and you know, from Ireland, from Wales and everything. So what is it going to take? 20, 30, 40 seconds, two minutes. Um, but I guess that's my dad saying, you know, don't turn your back. Yeah, well, it's the, the modern day is certainly a lot different now. Um, I think that, that that's fair to say. I, I was going to touch on that um, when you won the league, like you mentioned, Bob, you had to uh, avoid defeat against your arch rival Spurs in that last game. How? <laughs> what was your memories of that? And has that made it all the sweeter to win that game one nil in the last on the last day? Well, you can imagine if you'd asked me the question, "What is the game your favourite game ever?" <laughs> and you, you know, you, people would think, "Oh, winning, winning the double, and winning five days later after that game." But it was the Monday night at Tottenham. But yeah. I mean, just put yourself in that position for anybody listening who understands their football. We are level on points with Leeds United. Mm-hmm. As I explained, we either have to win the game by whatever score to get the two points. Two points. Yeah. Not three points, remember, at that time. We had to win the game or we had to draw nil-nil. If we drew nil-nil, we would win on goal difference. Yeah. If it was 1-1-2-2 at Tottenham, Leeds were champions. So we had to win the game or draw nil-nil. When we got there, what we didn't realize, there were about, I mean, it, it's estimates that still up to in excess of 20,000 people locked out of the ground. Wow. And we couldn't get to the ground. So there was a, there was a delay and delay. And in one way it helped because instead of having the hour and a half before kickoff, because we never went out on the pitch you see before a game in those days, you never went yeah. out. You did, I did my, I went in the, uh, the buff areas and everything and was throwing a ball against the wall and catch, 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 bounce, <laughs> bounce, bounce, catch, catch, catch. And then I would shoulder charge the dressing room, um, the walls, yeah. because you know, in those days, you knew if I went for a cross, I was going to. I got a picture of that night with Martin Peters, with his elbow right in my face, you know, absolutely. And you just took it on the days, on the days, and everything. And so it, it was. It was an extraordinary night building up to it, and uh, we went out. You can imagine the atmosphere because up to that time, on that famous day in May 1971. Only one English club had won the double, mm-hmm. Tottenham Hotspur. In 1961, Danny Blanchflower led Tottenham Hotspur to the first double in the history, the first league and FA Cup double in the history of the English league, English football, as it were. Yeah. And ten, 10 years later, 
the only side who'd come close to doing that and emulating what those guys did was us. So they hated us. I mean, they still hate us. I mean, they had respect. I, you know, so many pals and whatnot who had Tottenham supporters and Tottenham players of yesteryear and everything. And I mean, some of our best friends. But and, and it's respect that you you look for. But we went out, and there was not one. Oh God, I can't tell you. I mean, I I remember the times, and we got to we got to towards the end, and it was nil nil, which was good enough. But suddenly Ray Kennedy heads in across from George Armstrong, and it hits the underside of the bar. Big Pat can't get off the ground. Big Pat Jennings. There were two on the two two were two fullbacks on the other post, and Big Pat, and it still squeezed in. And with one nil, with eight ten minutes to go, and it was like the scariest eight ten minutes that I will ever have in my life, because from that moment it was like the charge of the light brigade, and they did not why they could see Arsenal, and of course if they scored a goal, Leeds are champions. Yeah, because one one means Leeds are champions, and I mean I, I very remember very the ball dropped into the box, and I did one of my kamikaze dives onto the ball and as I got there and I got there easily I'd have had to say five seconds before Alan Mullery arrived well it probably was five seconds because the next thing I knew his boot had cut my head open you know and I mean you just accepted it he didn't want to see he was trying to wrestle the ball out of my hands and everything and bang so I got a good old cut on, on the head and everything but anyway we survived that eight minutes and the final whistle went, and I mean, again, the pitch got invaded by Arsenal fans, which it shouldn't have done. And uh, I think there was, there was a, a reason that there was a decent respect from the, a lot of Tottenham fans who didn't like what they'd seen, but were incredibly respectful as well. Uh, and it was then a case of how do you get off the pitch? How do you get off the pitch? And I, people were sort of hugging me. And I then was hugging people in return and I, I turned around and there was, I thought it was one of the players and I, I hugged this guy and almost lifted him off his feet. It was the ref. <laughs> I actually was lifting the referee off his feet. <laughs> oh, sorry, ref, you know. Uh, and anyway, we got in there and I mean, you can imagine, can't you? But four day, well, this is on a Monday night. So we got Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And on the Saturday, five days later, we're walking out with Liverpool at yeah. Wembley Stadium in front of 100,000. And we were given the day off the following day. Um, the lads went to celebrate. I mean, they went to the pub in Southgate, which was in North London. And I, I've never been a great drinker. Uh, probably it's been a good thing in some respects. I like <laughs> a glass of wine now. But anyway, the lads all went to this White Hart pub in Southgate in North London. And I had family at home because they'd all come to watch the game and I desperately wanted to celebrate with them, you know, champions of England. We were champions of England. This is, you know, how, you know. So anyway, um, I had a couple of drinks with the lads and then I went to the toilet and it was a big toilet, uh, a big toilet window that opened to the outside. And I, I unlocked it and climbed through the window <laughs> and took a taxi home. And uh, the lads, never they never missed me. They never missed it. Nobody actually said, oh, you know, it's great to see. They said, oh, good, good to see you having a drink, Willow. But by then, they were into pint four, five, six or whatever. Completely <laughs> yeah, eight. Yeah, and we had the day off, fortunately, Tuesday. Then the Wednesday was incredible because we went back to our training ground at London Coney. And Don Howe, the coach, had made the staff cut the grass 
exactly like Wembley. That's wow. how his that's how his brain thought. And we we trained then for the next two or three days on a pitch that was just like cut close, cut clean. You know, it was immaculate. Um, and and then you know then then came the day. I mean, I go to my dying day with everything that's happened to me. Of course, I get even now, and I know to my dying day, I will have people saying, "What were you doing with the Liverpool goal?" <laughs> what were you doing with the Steve Highway goal? I mean, after 90 minutes, we should have been three or four nil up. Ray Clements had made some great saves and we had definitely been the better side. I'd had two or three really good saves. And then first minute of extra time and Steve Highway cut inside Pat Rice. And before the game, because they had John Toshak at centre forward, Don Howard said to me, Willow, who have you got to deal with today? And I said, Toshak. He said, look, Frank's five foot ten and a half. Peter Simpson's five foot eleven. You're six foot one. You're the only one with your arms and whatnot. You're going for every cross. And that was my orders. And so throughout the game, I tended to, you know, anticipate, just anticipate. And in the first minute of extra time, I mean, it's gone well for me both on crosses and punches. And then um, on the first minute of extra time, Highway cut in from the left and, and he, beat, he went past Pat Rice and I started to put my weight towards the left side anticipating a cross to Toshak. And as I fractionally moved, and I mean fractionally, it left this little tiny gap inside my near post and he hammered it low and true. And as I then sprung round and swiveled round and dived, it just clipped the bottom of the post and went in and you know, I look, I can tell you this, I looked around and Frank was looking at me and his hands were on his hips. Now, this is a guy who'd lost four or five times in a final for Leicester City. So, you know, and, and had lost against Swindon as well and chucked his tankard in the mud, which he did. And he looked down at me. I mean, if, if looks could have killed Derek, it was like, you know, I mean, I was an idiot. And and the great thing that happened for me then was within two minutes, I had one of the best saves I'll ever have from close range from Brian Hall. And it kept us at 1-0 and we went right up at the other end and there was this ridiculous, ridiculous sort of mix-up in the Liverpool defence and we equalised 1-1. And then from then on, all I remember, particularly as the clock was ticking away, uh, was Charlie George unleashing this incredible strike. You know, it was over 90 degrees in that stadium that day. Oof. Only Ray Clements and I did not get cramp of the two teams. Mm. And yet, Charlie George, at 19, 20 years of age, a lad who I'd taught, by the way, because I was his part-time teacher for a while wow. at his school. Yeah, no, incredible. <laughs> and he pinged it, and Ray sprung athletically as he did, an amazing spring. But it hit the top corner, and... <clears throat> We won 2-1 in extra time and the final whistle went and I mean, just, just, you know, it's just incredible, incredible really. My mum and all my family were there except my Scottish dad. Uh, my Scottish dad wouldn't watch me play for England schoolboys against Scotland in 1957. And on May the 8th, 1971, my Scottish dad did not, could not pluck up the nerve after all he'd experienced in the First World War and everything, wow. he couldn't pluck up the courage. So he had my then surviving eldest brother, Don, stay with him because uh, Don told me, you know, what he thought and what he felt. And it was, um, 
I mean, in, incredibly, incredibly emotional uh, that particular day. Uh, and and when I came down the steps, Don Howe was hugging and kissing me, you know, and all the work he'd put in with me. But the one who really had the biggest smile on his face was Bertie Mee, yeah. British University's physio, Arsenal physio, who'd become this manager. And he, he it was a moment he he always, you know, he remembered. One of his daughters got married six months ago and she asked me to act as dad because Bertie died many years ago. Yeah. And, um, yeah, yeah, incredibly wonderful but very emotional times. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, the Wembley experience, of course, you'd lost um, in finals before. Um, you beat Liverpool, like you said there, Bob, in 71. What was it like playing at, at Wembley, um, the whole experience and all that sort of thing? And, and like you say, playing in front of 100,000 people, it must have been such a uh, such a un- unique occasion. Yeah, I mean, it always is a unique occasion, not just the, you know, singing singing the great song as you do and, and, and all that side of it. But this is the part where Don Howe would be the footballing coach and Bertie Mee's brilliance and, and all the other thought he put into it. I mean, he had, you know, he became, he was such an amazing physio initially anyway. Uh, and he'd experienced Wembley. And I can remember him sitting us down and using a word that a lot of the guys in our squad didn't actually understand. I had to think hard what he meant anyway. But he said, listen, guys, when you go out there, and this was on the Wednesday, by the way, when we came back to training, and it was like this Churchillian speech, and he said, you're going to have to be prepared for all sorts of things, you know, and he said, above all, you know, you'll go out on the pitch and have a look at the pitch, but still no warm-up on that pitch. You know, no, you didn't warm up on the pitch, warmed up in the dressing room. And he yeah. said, but he came out with this line. He said, when you go up the tunnel, that's one challenge for you with them standing beside you, Liverpool, Bill Shankly. And Bill Shankly will try and wind you up. <laughs> of course, Bill Shankly will try and wind you up, you know. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, wild man, you know. And he said, but the thing that will happen, he said, you'll suddenly be in the darkness of the tunnel. You'll see the light ahead of you. And then when you hit daylight, you are going to be hit by, and here comes the word, a cacophony of sound. <laughs> and I know a few of the lads sort of looked at him and said, you know, wanted to say what cacophony means. <laughs> and what cacophony means is that when you hit daylight, when you walk out of Wembley Stadium with 100,000 people there, it's as if it starts from the top terrace and rolls down and rolls down and hits you square, not just between the ears, but between the eyes as well, because it's just... A, a remarkable sight. It's something that, you know, that that lives with you. And and I would say this, Derek, because I think we had a player who who it almost put off playing to his best, almost scared him. Um, you know, I think I think there were players who could go, "Wow, this is what I've dreamt of all my life. This is what it's all about. This is amazing." Because I was a nervous goalie, but I did love that that particular, you know, the noise thing. Yeah. And that could lift you. But there were players, other players who could definitely be affected the wrong way by being hit by that cacophony. Yeah. Uh, of sound, you know, most amazing. And then after that, obviously, it's, it's lining up. You're walking out side by side because I was looking, you know, there's Frank, there's Bertie me at the front, there's Frank in front of me. I'm the, I'm the goalie behind him and I'm looking over and there's the great shanks. And there, 
behind him is Tommy Smith. You know, Tommy Smith was, you know, I mean, the stories of Tommy Smith and what he was like as a player and how he could wind other people up is just, you know, they are legendary. Um, you know, he is the guy who, who, who ran to Jimmy Greaves once. Greaves, he always told this story because they'd had a million games against each other. That's an exaggeration, I know. But he ran to him once and, and he, gave him, he gave him this bit of paper. And Greaves, he said, what are you doing? He said, have a look at it. This is before they played. This is true. And he looked at it. It was the menu for the Liverpool local hospital that night. He gave him a bit of paper that said, because he was going to kick him. <laughs> uh, but anyway, there's, Tom, there's Tommy Smith, you know, I mean, all those guys who, uh, you know, who, who became, well, were great players anyway, in, incredibly, yeah. incredibly fine players. And then after that, it was the royalty thing. So it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you wanted to just get going. You were desperate to get going. Yeah. And have you got have you still got your your medals um, up there? Yeah, I mean, I have. I mean, in in our office, it's not something that we have. I don't have footballing memorabilia upstairs apart from one one item that's a, a very personal George Best signed mm. painting or a print of a painting of a football ground, and it's it's one of three, and it's signed by George. But in in the office downstairs, very proudly sits my England schoolboys cap, right alongside my Scottish international full cap yeah. and then obviously the, there are the medals behind it there's the the cup the cup winners medal which is a replacement medal which i had to pay for because i had the proper medal stolen oh dear. Um, and i asked the fa to replace it and they they, they said yes you can replace it fatterini's in italy in italy fatterini's in in birmingham make them but it'll cost you 365 pounds so <laughs> i had to pay for that yeah um so I have that the replica one, and I have the what is a, it's like a, a plaque is the um, Division One League Champions one. Mm. So they're they're together, yeah. and behind it is the a little smaller replica of the um, of the Fairs Cup, the European Trophy, which was they had a little replica that you got as the winner yeah. of the Fantastic. trophy itself. Excellent. Um, I, was yeah. going, I was going. To, you mentioned the, the the emotional FA Cup final, and 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 your dad not 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 making it down to watch it. Was that was that difficult to deal with, Bob? That that, that he couldn't bring himself to go down and and watch his. No, because I know I know what I know. It wouldn't with my dad. He he, you know he. I don't know. Do you know what? I never. I will never know. Of course, whether it was a superstition because. Mm whether he'd watched... You see, he wouldn't watch me play against Scotland because we were playing against Scotland. Yeah. That is true. He was as proud as punch that I was playing at that level for England schoolboys at Hillsborough. I mean, that's only 12 miles from where we lived in, Ch- in Chesterfield. Yeah. So my mum, you know, my brother's sisters, you know, my they were all there. You know, and, and the cup final in 71, obviously my wife was there, you know, all my best friends were there, my family were there except for Don, who was the surviving brother at the time, who sat with my dad in Lincolnshire. Uh, and I asked him, I said, what did dad do? He said, oh, yeah, you know, he was, he, was, he was on his feet. He was nearly crying. Yeah. And, um, but whether it was, I never really asked him. I didn't, you know, he preferred not to be there. My mum, she was just incredible because I know she tells a story. She was coming away because they waited as long as they could after the game and they bumped right into David Coleman, 
And yeah. she, David Coleman hasn't got a clue who this <laughs> this mad lady from Glasgow, you know, the Reverend Robert Primrose's daughter, <laughs> was running towards him going, Oh, oh David, I'm Andrew Wilson's mum. Oh. <laughs> and he told me afterwards, he said, Do you know, do you know who uh, physically attacked me the other, you know, because like, oh, I... Mean, he was my mentor when I went from football to television with with David, and he yeah, was the one who believed that. that I could, I could actually be a footballer who could present the main programs. And mm. yeah, I mean the memories are just—it's great to have them revived at times because you know the years are going back, going by too quickly. Yeah. Yeah, they, they, they certainly are. That's for sure. Um, just finishing up, but but, but Arsenal, of course, you, you would um, you mentioned there. You touched on it earlier. You were injured in that FA Cup semi final the following season against Stoke and missed the the Leeds United final. Was was that a disappointment for you watching from the sidelines? You feel that you could have you could have made a difference in in that final, perhaps? No, I mean I wouldn't have made a difference. I, you know, Leeds Leeds uh, Leeds were the better side on the day. Jeff Barnett who was reserved to me through all those times and. It was his moment of glory, and he did really, really well. And the goal that was scored um, was a combination of Gray and Clark. And um, if I'd been standing on the goal line with uh, Jeff on the day, and there'd been two of us there, he would have still gone in. Yeah. Um, so they they deserved to win it. It was pretty sad for me. It was it was when they walked out. It was at the moment they appeared from the tunnel that I actually started. I was doing the television. Obviously, they'd put me on the, with a panel. Yeah. I mean, it was good to have me on there missing the final. And, and it's a good job they didn't have, they were concentrating on the pictures because I was crying when they came out. Mm. You know? And so, um, yeah, I mean, they all knew what it meant to me. But Leeds deserved to win that. And it was a case then for me, it was seven months before I managed to get back in. And it was at that time I was determined to get back in. I mean, I got back into not just playing, but playing I think as well in fact I know because I have the cut you know I know the games I I got back to being exactly where I was before and hoping that you know that there would be another international call up because two caps one against Portugal in that first game and then against Holland where we lost in the last minute of the game yeah uh, I was desperate you know but by that time Tommy Dock had gone and Tommy Dock was the one, you know, when, when it all came up and all the fuss about being as he Scottish as English and what have you, how can he play for Scotland? He was the one who came up with the most outrageous statement. I picked him because he's as good as, if not better than Gordon Banks. You know, <laughs> I mean, that was the, that, yeah, that, no pressure. I mean, that was the Doc's <laughs> way. I mean, the Doc's way even now is, you know, he was just so funny. He was outrageous in statements but you know if ever you needed somebody to boost your confidence yeah i mean he was incredible because he knew uh, the sort of pressure that i was under you know with the, with the, with the, both from the press point of view and everything else and so he did everything he could to make sure that when i walked out um and there was there was one of the the top the scotland selectors and i can remember him saying to me when I was in the tunnel, we were waiting for Eusebio to lead out Portugal alongside us. Mm-hmm. And then he said, um, welcome home, son. <laughs> and it was like, oh, thank goodness. You know, there is some belief because I didn't know what the crowd, how the crowd were going to react. Yeah. And it was just incredible to run to the goal and to hear my name. There was never any doubt. I don't think in the majority of the crowd, it was a case of at the time, 
I was doing really well down in England for, for Arsenal. We were winning things. I was obviously, you know, it wasn't like the blanket coverage on television now, but people saw me play. And as far as the crowd were concerned, you know, the accent, <laughs> the Derbyshire accent didn't really matter. It was, it was whether I could fill those posts, as it were. Yeah, absolutely. That, the Scotland caps that you, you did earn, like you mentioned, the first game against Portugal, your, your debut at, at Hamden. And, uh, it was Tommy Doherty's first game as well, wasn't it, in charge of Scotland that, that, that game? Yeah, and I mean, you know, the fact that, uh, I mean, there was one other English-born player on that day. People tend to forget it, only because Alex Cropley, his name, Alex Cropley yeah. was picked in that squad but he was born, I think, in. Um, he was certainly born in England, but of course he lived all his life in Scotland. So he, he he had a very. I was the only one that got on that coach when they picked us up from the airport. George Graham and myself. He was playing his first international. Yeah. And Alex had a very very Scottish, broad Scottish accent, as did George Graham, of course. And it was difficult on the coach when all around me I'm hearing what I'm hearing, you know, from my own home. And you know my mum and dad's accent, and for me to try and make any sort of conversation on that coach was difficult. I promise you. <laughs> well, it was good. That, that was good. You asked that. What, what was the sort of players' reaction um, uh, to you joining up with them? Because, like, like you say, that the accents would have been a bit different. Yeah, I mean, there was uh, there was a. Uh, I felt as if all the because you've got to remember George and I. Tommy brought the coach to Glasgow Airport when we got off it, and the whole <clears throat> squad were on it on the way to in Ayrshire to the hotel. <clears throat> and uh, I can remember there was a very silent, there was a huge silence on the coach. But Tommy was the one who always broke the silence. And, you know, and it was, here's George and here's Bob, you know, lads. And I mean, he, he was brilliant in doing that. But there was definitely, um, the, you see, the great thing is the bottom line of being a footballer or wondering, you know, whether you are ever going to make it. The bottom line isn't really about the medals or trophies or whatever. Mm. It's the respect that there is within your opponents, within your teammates, yeah. within, you know. And I know at that time, you know, from the guys who were in that squad, Billy Bremner was there, Jimmy Johnson was there. In fact, a very funny story about my mum saying something to my wife makes about, I didn't realise Bob was such a giant of a, oh, dear, <laughs> I didn't realise was such a giant of a man. And my, and my wife said, but mum, they were, both had tammies on their head and everything and their scarves and said, mum, have a look at who they're against. There's Jimmy Johnson there who's five foot five or six and there's Billy Bremner who's five foot six, <laughs> Bob six foot one, you know. But um, <laughs> it, it was, it, it's about the respect and yeah. Even now, I know when I meet the guys of my era and everything, this huge respect. I mean, in the, in the last week, I've been asked to do two tributes, one to Peter Bonetti and one to Norman Hunter. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know, I mean, I respected them massively, for their achievements and what they were as players on the field. And I know that they respected me. I know Norman respected me. I know that uh, certainly Peter, I, I got to know a little bit better, obviously, than Norman Hunter, um, and and so it's for a, for a footballer, for a professional footballer, at the end of it, if you have the respect of your opponents, not just your teammates, it has to be the respect of your teammates first, but if you have the respect of your opponents, then 
you know you've you've done a good job. Yes, certainly. Of course, the, the rules changed in 1970 to then allow you to uh, play for your your parents' country of origin. But did you always want to play for Scotland, Bob? Was that always in in your mind, or um, was there a, a chance to play for England? It, it never it never was in my mind, Derek. How could it be in my mind when quite clearly, from the time that I started to show some promises, this last goalkeeper who dived head first. <laughs> Um, the rules were there in black and white. Yeah. White. You could only play for the country in which you were born. And so there was never any question of it. So for me at that time as a kid, it's very difficult for me now to try and explain, you know, I mean, it will always be pure Scottish blood that courses through my veins forever and a day. And, you know, there's never, ever, you know, my mum and dad, I was so fortunate to be born into the family that I was born in with the brothers and my, the sisters I had and everything else. But I was I was born in Chesterfield, Derbyshire, home of the Crooked Spire. You know, I say I still say Bath <laughs> and Auntie rather than down in the south of England where they say Bath and Auntie. You know, and I mean I didn't pick up because I was at a school in Derbyshire and I didn't You'd have thought I would have probably picked up my mum and dad's broad Scottish accents, but that wasn't the case for any of us. Yeah. And so it was never, I never entered my head at all um, until it was, you know, family-wise it was talked about. Um, and I always thought that the ruling was wrong anyway. I yeah. think the ruling's wrong when you go into great-great-great-great-grandfathers or things like that. Yeah. But I think if your mum or your dad you know, if my dad had been Scottish, which he was, and my mum had been English, which she wasn't, she was Scottish as well, I think the ruling should be you have the choice of playing for either England or Scotland. Yeah, definitely. And that is your choice. Yeah. Where it is mum and dad Scottish, there should be no argument. Yeah. There should be no discussion. And that's why, you know, some of this stuff that was reeled out at the time, I mean, it was groundbreaking and it was, in a way, it's quite great for me. Um, but, but it's, um, yeah, it's, a, it's always an impossible thing for me to explain. I have been as proud, I was as proud as proud to play for England schoolboys because at 15 years of age, all I'm thinking of is, can I, can I be, you know, I want to be a professional footballer, like a lot of 15-year-olds. So not much else is in the brain. But then when it became to the fact that, you know, you're, you, you've got a chance of playing international football, there's one story which is a true story that after one game, and I was, this, this is a really good story, uh, we'd played a game at Highbury one night, Arsenal, and I'd had a particularly good game, although I say modestly. And I'd played really well. And I'm about to go home. And Bertie Mee, I bumped into our manager, Bertie Mee, in the marble hall, which is just before you leave the ground. And he said, Willow, I've got something to tell you. And he said, Alf Ramsey was here tonight. Mm. Now, I said, oh, yeah. And he said, he asked me a very interesting question, Willow. So I said, what was that, Bertie? So he said, he asked me, is your goalkeeper eligible for my England under 21 side. Mm. At the time I was 30. <laughs> I was 30 years of age. But here, and Banksy was obviously the England goalie at the time with Peter Bonetti, number two, yeah. alongside Peter Shilton, who was the aspiring lad who was about to go on and win 125 caps. Yeah. And he asked Bertie <laughs> me, 
is your goalie young enough for my... I mean, I find it incredible. And I said, <laughs> and I mean, he said, I promise you, he's looking, he thinks that you're good enough to make it international football. <laughs> so there was definitely that story, which is great. I mean, I was in hysterics when mm-hmm. I told all the family, told my wife and everything, you know. He's trying to he's trying to pick me for the England under 21s when I'm 30 years of age in my prime. <laughs> But it is an impossible, it's an impossible ask for me because I've lived all my life in England. But, you know, when I was in that tunnel, when I was picked, knowing what it meant to my parents, not just for me, but for my parents, you know, that is just one of the most memorable moments in the whole of my life and my whole of my football career. And you wouldn't have not got anybody prouder walking out on that pitch. Yeah, that leads me on then, Bob. Walking out to, to Hamden um, with the Scotland jersey on, the national anthem and what have you, I mean, can you can you remember what that was like? Yeah, I remember singing. <laughs> oh, flower of Scotland. And started Good to make you. sure that I even got onto the second verse. <laughs> wow. You know, I, 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 don't, I really only knew the first verse. But... <laughs> Don't ask me to go with the second verse now about it. I think it's about going to the hills and seeing wee Charlie off or whatever it was, you know. But, <laughs> yeah, I, I absolutely made sure that, you know, I mean, because that was what it was with mum and dad. I mean, that, that the pride that they had in being Scottish always came through all of us. Um, and, and as I say, both the, you know, my mum being the, the daughter of a Scottish Presbyterian minister, the Reverend Robert Primrose, after whom I was famously named, (laughs) and uh, which remains a great quiz question, but a huge embarrassment was for me, you know, in my younger youth, I'm fine, I can take it on the head now, I think it's great to have a family, because my mum was Catherine Wingate Primrose, and her dad was the Reverend Robert Primrose, so... It is true that I am Robert Primrose Wilson, yeah. Yeah, the, and, and t- I mean, he, what a famous figure he is in, in Glasgow. And, and we're touching on your, your great uncle, um, Sir John, your Primrose, once chairman of, of Glasgow Rangers. Um, I mean, it's quite fascinating stuff. Well, it, it's amazing stuff, isn't it? It's like, a, you know, you probably, if you wrote a book, if I wrote a book and you had all these connections between Sir John, your Primrose, who was... Lord Provost of Glasgow for the three or four years between 1900 and 1903, chairman of the great Glasgow Rangers. Um, obviously, I had no, I have no recognition of, I mean, no remembrance of that, but I mean, I've read all about him. And then to have my mother's brother, also Sir John Your Primrose, who was Lord Provost of Perth for eight years, I think it was, and he was a farmer on Gallachy Farm. And my dad, every every summer, our holiday was in a caravan. We'd set off from home in Chesterfield at four, and we'd make Scotch, Scotch corner by breakfast time, have a little bit of breakfast, and then we'd go on to Ayrshire, yeah. where my dad was born, and Threepwood Farm, because the name of our house and the name of my, my wife's house of Threepwood is the name of the farm that he was born on in, in Ayrshire. Uh, and then we'd move on. We'd have a few days in Ayrshire, and then we'd move on to Perth. And we'd finish up on in Lochern, uh, which, which is where he, he had he had his beautiful yacht, the Flying Fifteen, and he had a, an old boat. Um, we were in the caravan, and he had this amazing boat that was, in fact, a, a, a boat house, as it were. <clears throat> and um, sometimes we stayed on the boat. Sometimes 
we stayed in the caravan. But that was Sir John York Primrose. I have all the photographs of him with the Queen, with with you know, I mean, extraordinary character as well. I love being on Ganachy Farm and the family, the family, the family, the, the Primrose family, and the Yellowleaf family are all interlinked, and they. I think David Yellowlees is still near Ganachy Farm in Perth as well. Yeah. Uh, all the, there's, there's plenty of Scottish connections still there. Yeah, and uh, touching on the, the Scotland appearance ag- again, Bob, of course, the, the media reaction, um, I'd imagine, would have been a bit different back then to um, what it is now. What, what was the sort of reaction to you um, playing for Scotland? Uh, it, was, it was a little bit strange. I mean, it was a little bit like, oh, hang on a minute, guys. I know that I've, I'm up there, you know. I mean, Tommy, Tommy's thing about is better than Banks, that's why I've chosen him, was a bit over the top, mm-hmm. but wonderful for me. It made me believe that, you know, I, I could challenge Banksy. I could play at the other end to Banksy or Pat Jennings or whoever it might be. So it was, you know, it, it, at the time it was... Um, it was difficult to, to actually have the question marks. That's the only way. I mean, it, you know, I mean, it was a big story. Derek, that was a big story yeah. to have an English guy with such an accent, you know, such a broad English accent turn up. I mean, if it hadn't been for Tommy's outrageous statements about how good I was and George Graham being my Arsenal teammate, also making his debut for Scotland, I'm not sure quite how I would quite have got through that. Yeah. And those two between me were massive. Yeah, And it, it helped me a little bit. It did help me a little bit that, you know, I mean, I knew, although there, there were the strange looks from the guys, you know, not strange looks, but sort of maybe apprehensive a little bit. But, you know, they'd all played, not all played against me, not the Scottish Jimmy Johnson hadn't played against me. Or maybe we had, yeah, I think he probably had when we played in Scotland. Mm. But it, it was a testing time and one that, you know, all I'd had to do was to, to go into the fact that I was going to make my mum and dad so proud that I was proud in myself and that I was going to have the opportunity of playing on a, on a ground that I think Sir John Your Primrose, who was Lord Provost of Perth at the time, was there opening as well on that day in 1903. So it's, it's a crazy story. Yeah. It is a crazy story. It certainly is. And, of course, you played against Portugal at that game at Hamden and they had, like you said, the great Eusebio playing for them. Um, what was it like sharing a field with a, a player of, of that calibre? Well, a, a little bit scary because, obviously, you know, the, the you know having seen the World Cup and having seen him, um, you know, in 66 yeah. and where he really made his name, uh, and I, I can remember so clearly, you know, in the tunnel and suddenly the Portuguese side came and stood beside us in the tunnel because it was an international. In, in in normal league games, you went out separately. But in the international, obviously, you, you lined up for your the national anthem. And I glanced up and I saw, you know, I saw his face, Eusebio's face. It was a little bit of fear and trepidation. Jeebus, <laughs> where have I got to? Am I really up to this sort of standard? This is the guy who was one of the three best players in in the World Cup of 66 and with all his reputation. Yeah. I actually got to meet him later on a beach in Portugal oh. with Johan Cruyff. With Cruyff, and that was ironic because of national was yeah. against Cruyff and Holland. And although, 
I think every time I see Kenny Dalgleish, which isn't regularly at all, but if ever I bumped into him, he always talks about me letting in this goal in the last 30 <laughs> seconds of the game. And it was a near post corner, just in, and I've come from the middle of the goal, and it just flicked off the head into the top corner. I mean, I think from a goalkeeper's point of view, nightmare, but Kenny won't have it. And uh, he, I know he's on more than one occasion said, oh, he threw the jerseys. <laughs> of course, that, which that, wasn't kind, was it? That's not a thing you did. I think he's like like he's at it there, Kenny. Um, like you said, you you played Holland in uh, your second game, uh, yeah. Bob, and yeah, it was uh, Kenny Dalglish's first um, first game it's for full Scotland international. Well. Yeah, yeah, it was his first full appearance. He had appeared, I think, he appeared in Aberdeen or somewhere. Yeah, you know, but I mean, Kenny always had this dry humour. I mean, if I'd had the nerve, I never had the nerve to say it, to say to him, you know what, Kenny, we lost two one in the last kick of the game. It was a friendly game, and we lost, which is horrible. I said, but do you know what the real score should have been in that game? It should have been six <laughs> one. But I never had the nerve to say it because I know that of the two internationals, I had such massive work to do in the game in the Olympic Stadium in Amsterdam. And yeah. uh, you know when you've played well, you know when you've, you know, that was not that was not a Steve Highway near post positional no. um, error. That was just, it's like Leeds United used to do, they used to find Jack Charlton's head at the near post and he scored millions of goals like that. Yeah. Not millions, but yeah. yeah. I know what you mean. And you yeah. said, you said, of course, Eusebio in that first game at Hamden. <laughs> it doesn't get any easier when you face Johan Cruyff. Um, yeah, in that second, second game. Yeah, in that second <laughs> game. And of course, he scored as well. What was, again, another tremendous talent of the game? Oh, yeah. I mean, Johan, I mean, when I, I, you know, obviously on my Q&As and everything, whenever I'm, I, I do my talks and then open it to the audience and everything. It's uh, who 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 was the English player that you most feared and hated, and it would either have been Bestie, but particularly Jimmy Greaves, who could make you look stupid. What was the foreign player? And I mean, I say without even a hesitation, and I played against him about six or eight times in all, got to know him really well off the field as well when we used to holiday at the same place in the Algarve, our family and Johan's family. Wow. So Johan Cruyff, who was definitely, you know, everybody talks about Pele. Well, I think Cruyff was as good, if not better than Pele in so much that he covered more of the field. Pele was a the man anywhere in the box. Pele would do extraordinary things and score, but Cruyff could, could play in almost every position. He was built like a greyhound. He was, he, you know, he, I have a, I have a picture of him in my office quite funny again because um, I got this Dutch shirt and when we were on holiday I said um, I said would you sign and the, oh no I sent it to him and uh, I sent it with a picture of him as well which with him just in shorts and some trainers and it just like a the six pack with or the eight pack or the whatever it was just <laughs> unbelievable and I asked him to sign it and it's up on my wall in the office uh, and it says to Bob um I bet you wish you could have a body like mine, <laughs> your ever-joking friend, Johan Coy. <laughs> and that's up alongside my Pele shirt, which was a, a proper Pele when he played for Santos. Um, and again, I was lucky enough because of my television work, I interviewed Pele on several occasions. And um, But Johan, definitely Johan when it comes to the European front. 
Yeah, yeah, he was certainly something else. You earned your two caps, of course, but you never earned um, any more. Is that a, a bugbear of yours that you, you couldn't add to the cap? Well, the appearances for Scotland? Yeah, um, I, I guess really, um, I'm not one, you know, I mean, the fact that I played at all is amazing. Um, as I said to you from my mum and dad, it was amazing. I think the disappointment for me was that Willie Ormond never, I mean, I was back in the team. We were still fighting for the league championship again, you know, in the year that I got back to full fitness. I was out of the game for seven or eight months with my knee injury, which caused me to miss the 72 cup final. And I know that he never came. Um, So there's a little bit, you know, I find that really disappointing that, um, that, you know, that I wasn't given the opportunity to sort of pick up where I'd left off. And where I left off was, okay, it was a defeat in Holland, but uh, it was from my remembrance and from all the reports, you know, I had one of my better games, shall we say. So, yeah, very disappointed in Mr. Ormond. <laughs> yeah, did, did you ever um, uh, manage to ask him or, or ask why you weren't being included at all? No, no, I never, never had the... Uh, no, I mean, it, you know, it was pretty obvious from then on that, um, you know, the, the guy, there were some good guys coming anyway. David Harvey was coming. David Harvey yeah, was a good United. goalkeeper. Yeah. Really good, solid, solid goalkeeper. Um, but anyway, yeah, I mean, clearly a disappointment that it was the two. I mean, it's quite two biggies that I had, you know, because as you've mentioned it, you know, Eusebio and Portugal and Cruyff and Holland, there were two. If I wanted two goodies to have... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, but anyway, it, it, you know, whatever was to be was to be, and uh, my my career then was. I mean, obviously, I was beginning to appear regularly <clears throat> on the telly, and yeah. there suddenly came. I mean, this will cross over into what you want to talk about. There suddenly at the B, they had the belief that I, because of my guess, my the fact that I wrote my own scripts from day one and everything. Mm. and wrote all my, you know, when I was doing an analysis piece on whatever play it would be, Kenny Dalgleish or whatever, uh, I wrote my own scripts, did all that. Um, And they came to me and said, Sam Leach, who used to present what was called football preview, um, was going to be the new head of sport at the Beeb. And they really thought I had a chance of not just presenting my own program, which we renamed Football Focus, which still lives today. Yeah. Uh, with Dan Walker there, um, but also the possibility that you know I you know if I if I developed as they thought I would, I would be getting to do match of the day, grandstand, and all the big sports programs, which ultimately, obviously, I did for twenty years at the Beep and got headhunted by ITV and eight years at ITV. So, um, could I have played on? Definitely. Um, could I have played on at Arsenal? Doubtful. Because mm. I think I was then 33, and it was um, I was due a testimonial, which was a little bit sad because I never got that testimonial. Yeah. I had to make that decision pretty well. I I knew that the decision I never wanted to play anywhere else, and to be honest with you, I didn't want to be replaced by somebody at Arsenal. So I took what I thought was a sensible decision to say, look, I've, what's happened for me has been amazing. Um, I have an opportunity now of not just going back to teaching or being a coach or even a manager. Um, I have a possibility of actually presenting 
some major television programs because they obviously had a belief in me. And that's how it worked out, you know, to to have 20 years at the Beeb with football focus, match of the day, grandstand. <clears throat> uh, I didn't want to be in the chair on the Hillsborough disaster day, but that's what I had to have. Uh, that was me in the chair on that day. And then, obviously, I had eight years at ITV. Um, so I didn't have any regrets. Once, it, once I had made the decision with my wife that, you know, we've got a long time to live, hopefully, and here is a, a real opportunity. And the fact that she knew, I mean, the one thing I had to give up was my testimonial. <laughs> yeah. Which was quite sad because I'd been there, obviously, from 63 to 74. <clears throat> so I, Frank and I were, were due our testimonials. Frank actually got, um, Frank McClintock, he got transferred to Queen's Park Rangers. So he didn't get his testimonial either. But anyway, that's beside the point, that, that particular point. Well, that was episode 48 of the Talking Fitball podcast and part one of our special interview with Bob Wilson. As ever, I hope you enjoyed it. Part two will be released at the end of the week, so stay tuned for that. Remember, if you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can catch them all on Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, Podbean, and by visiting the recently launched website, talkingfitball.co.uk. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at talking underscore football, and we're on Facebook as well. Hope you can join me again next time, but until then, stay safe and bye for now.